Raising black children in the United States can be really scary. And as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear. And I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to the Parenting for Liberation podcast, and I am your host, Trina Green-Brown. Each week, I am joined by other black parents, and we discuss our own journeys to push past our fear so that we can raise our beautiful black children to be whole, free, and liberated. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed, no more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead, the world has changed so very much. Hey y'all, it's Trina with Parenting for Liberation. I'm so excited for this episode. We're actually sharing the audio recording from our event, Pleasure and Parenting, which was hosted in the summer with Danny McLean, who's the author of We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood, and Adrienne Marie Brown, who's the author of Emergent Strategy and also her latest book, Pleasure Activism, The Politic of Feeling Good. They are friends and comrades, and they're also my beloveds, and it was really great to host them in Los Angeles on this conversation about what does it mean to parent and also enjoy pleasure, and what are the pleasures of parenting, and how can we generate pleasure and liberated relationship with our children and with our other peers. So check out this conversation. This podcast is actually a a joint podcast between Adrian's podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. So you'll hear Adrian's introduction into her podcast and then you'll hear the live recording hello listeners i'm so excited to be telling you about our guest podcast this week it's adrian so our guest podcast this week is parenting for liberation this podcast is hosted by mother and organizer and a dear friend of mine trina green brown and it's a podcast that asks how do we parent without fear And is it possible to raise critically aware children that are also happily carefree? So this summer, Parenting for Liberation hosted an event with the Underground Museum and Loom that featured myself and my woe, Danny McLean, in conversation about our 2019 book releases. So Danny put out the book, We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood, and I put out Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. And first of all, I highly recommend if you ever get the chance to be friends with someone for two decades and then put out a book the same year and the same season, it's just really exciting and nice and yeah, do it. Um, So we get to be in conversation with Erica Chitty Cohen and it, and she's also incredible. We got to meet her and just really bond over being three black women with fibroids moving through the world um, and healing and learning how to be in right relationship with our bodies and all of it. So Trina introduced us, and you'll get to hear that introduction here, talking about her podcast, talking about Audre Lorde, grounding us in the space together. And then you'll get to hear our conversation, and Trina was kind enough to let us cross-post this so you can just bask in the incredible love and wisdom fest that occurred um, in L.A. that day. So please enjoy this. So Audre Lorde, who's a black queer feminist poet and scholar, describes parenting as a revolutionary act that can liberate not only her children, but all of our children. And Parenting for Liberation believes in the power of parents to conceive, birth, and nurture liberation for the future. And I launched Parenting for Liberation in 2016, and around that time, I was parenting from fear because I was witnessing the violence that was happening against black bodies. 
and witnessing so much violence, whether it be black boys being murdered for wearing a hoodie, Trayvon Martin, or for listening to rap music or loud music, Jordan Davis, or just walking down the street, Emmett Till, or playing with a toy in a park, Tamir Rice. I realized that when I witnessed those violences that were happening and learned of them, that I was beginning to parent for protection and fear and not for love and liberation. And I saw that I was beginning to nurture my own son's fear, fear that he couldn't do things that he was afraid that he was able to do. And I didn't want to limit his possibilities. And so I knew I had to shift how I was parenting to parent, not for protection only, but to parent for liberation. And so that work is rooted in an Afrofuturistic vision where black parents are in community together. And so it's just incredible to see folks here together in community because this is what is the pathway to our own collective liberation is to create community that amplifies um, black girl magic and black boy joy. Um, and so part of that work has gotten me connected to Danny. Um, Danny has been an incredible partner in the work about raising liberated black children and having those conversations. And also that work has brought me to Adrian, who is an incredible son. Did you say son? I was like, son, you are the son. You also are a mermaid and a unicorn, all of the things. I was like, you're the son? Okay. <laughs> you can be all that. This is, it is, it is Adrian who is beaming down on you right now. <laughs> Adrian, the son. <laughs> um, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> Adrian gives me the giggles. Adrian's all things magical. So yes, including the sun. Um, and I just want to also turn this to Erica, who's going to talk to them about their incredible works um, and how how parenting is rooted in our own pleasure. Okay, I'm passing the microphone. Thank you. Thank you, Trina. Thank you, Trina. <laughs> <sighs> Well, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, my name is Erica Chitty Cohen, and I am the co-founder CEO of Loom. And for those that might not know about Loom, Loom is here in LA. We provide empowered education from periods to parenting. We see reproduction and the reproductive experience as a continuum. So it's actually a really beautiful thing to be here today talking about the intersection of pleasure and parenting because we really feel that those two things are deeply interconnected and also looking at it from the experience of black women and black people I think is extremely powerful so excited to kind of dive in there um, about me I also am a doula I am an educator I'm an author um, so it's very wonderful to be in the presence of other women who are who look like me and who are also doing work in similar spaces uh, before I go into my questions, the first thing I want to do actually is I, because I'm a nerd, I have my little oh fish, oh fish bios, just in case um, y'all don't know everything about these two incredible women sitting to my left and to my right. Um, Danny McLean is the author of We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. She is also reports on race and reproductive health. She's a contributing writer at The Nation and a fellow with Type Media Center formerly known as the Nation Institute. McLean's writing has appeared in outlets including Slate, 
Talking Points Memo, Color Lines, Ebony.com, and The Rumpus. She was a staff reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and has worked as a strategist with organizations including Color of Change and the Drug Policy Alliance. And she lives with her family in Cincinnati. And then to my right, we have Adrienne Marie Brown. She she is a Detroit-based social justice facilitator focused on black liberation, a doula, healer, and pleasure activist. Adrienne is the co-editor of Octavia's Brood, science fiction from social justice movements, and the author of Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, and Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds. Yeah. Correct. I can't really do a lot of clapping. I feel like we need to figure out how to help you hold your questions. I love what that you're. I love that you're dueling me let's because just, that's 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 let's correct. Just do that. there Thank we go. you. Okay. All right. So I'll, I'll hold one at a time. That's that, right. That, 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 that feels that, right. That's gonna be good. That feels right. Okay. So let's just dive into it. My first question is basically based around the fact that I wanted to honor the power of black friendship. And for those of you that don't know, Danny and Adrian have been friends for many, many years. And so I'd love for you both to share a little bit about how you met and what your favorite thing is about one another. Can I go? Um, So Danny and I went to college together um, at Columbia University and um, we met basically because I saw Danny, you had just, you had been walking around. Danny was always as like the super fly human being. Um, and I saw her walking around. She had just cut all her hair off. And I was like, what? Who is this person? Like, you just look like the most free being that I had ever met. And so I just like flocked towards her. And I remember standing like on Barnard, like we were trying to go to some class and being like, Basically, in my heart, I was like, will you be my friend? But, like, trying to figure out, like, other ways to say, like, hi, or whatever. Um, And throughout college and throughout to this day, I would say the thing I think is my favorite thing about Danny is she's always been, like, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Like, she's the one who's, like, cutting through, like, there's a bunch of bullshit. There's a bunch of stuff that's being said. And in my life, there's a lot of... um, I, I operate in a lot of magical, fantastical realms, and there's I meet a lot of magical, fantastical people, and there's a lot of magical, fantastical, like, yay, like, you know, and Danny's just like, okay, but for real, um, I'm down for the magic and the fancy, but how for real are we going to get there? Like, what's that really mean? Or just, like, cuts through in a way that keeps me, like, we're going to actually be able to change reality because of the that dynamic to me. So I love being around you. And my other favorite thing is how she parents. I feel like it's... Um, a long time coming and it was like beautiful to be like you really want to do this and I I really it's changed my I'm like oh only people who really want to do it like this should be doing it because the love that her child receives is like unparalleled and she knows it like she just walks around like I am loved where's my next loving interaction coming from so all of that is is some of my stuff about Danny and I also want to shout out we have some other folks that we went to school with here in the front row and throughout the audience uh, Tanji, Chaiko, Aaron, others. So just Ning. Yes, and Ning. Where'd Ning go? I was like, <laughs> were you not up here? Okay, there you are. Yay. Yeah, right? Reunion. <laughs> anyway, yeah. some things. I love that. Thank you, Adrian. Yeah. Um, and y'all will probably experience my little one, Isabel. She's around here somewhere, so she might come up to you hoping for a loving interaction at some point. <laughs> Um, well, I just want to thank everybody for being here. This is such an incredible crowd. Thank you for taking time out of your Sunday to come sit in the warmth and uh, fellowship and um, be in conversation with us. Thank you. Um, let's see. So I, 
I remember, I don't remember like an exact moment when we met. I trust you on that Barnard connection with the haircut. It's because I was you, nerding out and you were just like, <laughs> why are you talking to me? But I know we met really early uh, in our college career, like probably like maybe halfway through our freshman year. And I just remember it was like, um, I've, I've had, you know, I feel like this is such a blessing when you have a friendship and you just like get that excitement, that feeling like when you have a crush on someone, you know, cause that's what it is. It's a friendship crush. Um, and I just remember meeting Adrian and feeling like this is such a kindred spirit. I'm so lucky to have met this person. And then next thing I know, we're like in Prague on like a ridiculous <laughs> adventure. Um, we just immediately jumped into adventures from the start and, um, We worked on a literary magazine together called Roots and Culture, which was, I think of that as being um, really a jumping off point for a lot of the writing and the publishing that we've done in our careers, because it gave us an opportunity to produce this literary magazine together, along with people like um, Janine de Novage and Daniel Alarcon, who's now now Daniel is a very well-respected novelist and journalist. Um, So we got to um, strengthen our skills together. And... I mean, there's so many things I love about Adrian, but I would say one thing that she does um, that I so appreciate is that she helps me hold myself to a high standard. She never, um, whenever I've got myself in a bind, whether it be with like work or a relationship or something, and I'm showing a little bit of unhappiness, she's like, girl, like you deserve better than this. You know, um, you can have better if that's what you want. And she, she holds her own herself to a high standard in her life. And um, and I really learned from that because sometimes it can be easy to get comfortable and think this is enough. But when you watch someone who's just like constantly, what's next, you know, setting off for that, that next, um, not just accomplishment in the world's eyes, but what's really going to fulfill her heart's desire. I find that very inspiring. I love you. Love you too. Ah, that's such a nice way to start this off. Beautiful. Okay. So Danny. With white supremacy dictating the dominant culture, you know we're just yes. going. Let's go there. You see, you see, you see why. You see why I was like, let me just let's just lay it. So y'all let's friends, white people. Yes. <laughs> I was like, let's love up and then let's go in. Okay, so <laughs> so Danny, with white supremacy dictating the dominant culture, many people wouldn't make an immediate connection between black motherhood and political power. Can you explain the intrinsic link between them and how your book can be used as a modern handbook for mothering? So um, I was inspired to write this book. Um, I wrote the foundation for the first chapter, which is about birth and pregnancy, while I was um, pregnant with my daughter, who she'll be three next month. So, you know, I started the book because I had all these questions about how to mother And while I knew that I could, I have a good relationship with my own mother. I have lots of, you know, elders in my family and community who I knew I could reach out to. But I had a bunch of questions about what it means to raise a black child um, at this particular moment in time that I wanted to put to people whose political and cultural work I really admire. Um, Not to say that I don't of my family members, but I because I'm a reporter and because of the issues that I report on, I had been in contact with all these people who are like on the front lines of, um, you know, police accountability movement or reproductive justice organizing. And while I had interviewed them, um, you know, uh, for years about their campaigns and their political work, I, and I knew some of them were mothers or grandmothers, parents. I had never talked to them about their parenting and about how they bring their political values into their family life. So that was a motivation for the book. Um, and what you'll see when you read the book or if you've read it is that 
the book is uh, organized into nine chapters. It starts with pregnancy and birth, goes into um, establishing a home culture, uh, family life and family formation, um, building a community for our, our children, play and early, uh, early childhood development, education, um, how we uh, think about giving our children a kind of moral compass or, or grounding them spiritually, um, how we talk to them about the body and consent. And then finally, there's a chapter that's the most explicitly political, and that chapter is called Power. And it's about like specifically how do you talk to your kids about um, your politics. And I think um, what was important for me, so it's really, you know, you have eight chapters, and then the final chapter is the one that's, as I said, the most explicitly political. What I wanted to do was to show the, the politics in the everyday, um, the politics in our everyday decision making. So if I'm, you know, there's a part of the book where I'm like taking my daughter to this mommy and me program, this toddler program, and I'm watching, we're one of the only, the only black family in the class. And so I'm watching, you know, toddlers don't have good manners. They don't have good sense. So they're like stealing things from each other or, you know, um, they don't know how to share and causing tantrums and stuff. And I'm aware of the way that as a black parent, I'm like, nervous for my daughter. What's going to happen if she hits this little boy, if she pinches this little white boy? Um, and, and noticing my reaction to these scenarios that are really just part of our everyday lives as parents. There's a, there's, a, there's a question of power in that. Who has power? Why do they have that power? How are they going to exert it? And I think over and over again through the book, I'm trying to lift up these moments that I think for some parents, they're not even thinking about these kind of overarching um, structures that affect who they are, who their children are. They're just like, you know, um, at the grocery store or their, their child is falling out having a tantrum uh, in the mall and they're not worried like, oh, if I spank my child, is someone going to call CPS on me? Is someone going to call Child Protective Services? Or if I let my child while out, is someone going to call the police and say that here's like this unruly situation? So um, – that's kind of what I was getting at. I think a lot of people mistakenly, when they hear politics, they think of electoral politics. And I was very clear that that's not what I'm talking about here. And some of the highest praise that I've gotten um, from black people who have read the book is like, wow, you really just took the things that we always do and that we've always done and articulated it and articulated it as a politic, as a, a politics of parenting. So that's what I was going for. Wonderful. So, Adrian, a similar question for you. The subtitle of your book is The Politics of Feeling Good. What are some of the political barriers when it comes to pleasure, and why do you feel that joy can truly be an act of resistance? I feel like... I mean, it's actually pretty similar. You know, like a lot of it is very similar to me. I feel like the barrier is that we're not taught to think about our daily lives and our normal lives as the place where politics unfolds and happens. So it's kind of like we're socialized to think, oh, politics happens every four years when we participate in this electoral bullshit of a process, you know, what I feel. And I've done electoral organizing, and I think you all should vote. And also, it's a bullshit process. Like, we're just kind of holding off the... Um, it's kind of like holding the ignorance at bay as much as we can while we figure out what we actually need to cultivate with each other. And I feel like we do that, and we've kept each other alive in all these ways. But pleasure was an interesting choice to me in this moment because I, I felt kind of guilty even being like pursuing this book and moving in the direction of this book because it feels like um, it's apolitical. Like it, You either are being a political organizer who is completely sacrificing everything to fight against everything, or you're, you know 
taking a bath and doing a face mask, you're probably fragile. You can't handle life, right? And it's like those two things don't go together. And as a facilitator, what I was seeing was like, people are working themselves to a level of fragility that we can't actually, we're not going to survive if the people who are trying to change the world are constantly that fragile because we're not attending to ourselves as pleasure bodies. So that felt important. And then the other piece is like, you know, who gets to experience pleasure is really interesting to me and like how we've been trained out of it. I'm like, if you think about the journey as a black woman, a mixed race black woman in this country, when I think about like, oh, if I just trace my ancestral line in this country, what were we told our bodies were for? And it's a devastating answer. It's like, oh, my body was for working. My body was for laboring. My body was for reproducing for other people. My body was for repressing grief. My body was for repressing my actual desires and being obedient. And like every answer was like, that's not something I want to perpetuate into a future. I don't think that's going to create the futures we want. Um, And reading Audre Lorde's text over and over again, like that's one thing about me. I I feel like um, probably a lot of people read, like there's people who read in lots of different ways. And I find that as I get older, like I don't read the widest swath of everything that's out there. I go in really precisely into certain texts and then I just keep reading them over and over again in almost like a, um, a biblical approach. So Octavia Butler for me, I'm like, I've just read it over and over again. Like there's more here. And Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic as power was like that where I was like, I don't even, the first few times I read it, I was like, I don't even think I understand this. I think it's going way over my head, but I want, it's also reverberating down into like parts of it. I'm like, what? I want to know what that, what she means. You know, I want to know what she means that, that any political experience could be as good as being naked in a bed with her woman lover. I'm like, well, how for real, you know, like <laughs> teach me cause I'm out here suffering. So, um, so I feel like those two, those two things come together for me that I started to look around me and realize that the white people in my life, even if they were organizers, the white people in my life tend to have much more access to just the basic assumption that they deserve pleasure in their lives. And then those of us who are black, people of color, indigenous, all these other things, trans people, all these other folks who are already harboring oppression also believe that our, our, our purpose in life is to just get free and not necessarily experience any pleasure along the way. And... The last thing I'll say about it is what we produce when, when we're just trying to fight for freedom and not attending to the fact that we have bodies that feel sensation is often a, just a reproduction of the current system, but it's just like, oh, we're in charge now. So I also see that, like I facilitate organizations often where I'll get there and I'm like, we were trying to fight for liberation, but now it feels exactly like every other thing, but there's just a black person in charge who's miserable um, or something else, right? So there started to be a like, where do we actually practice the society we want to live into? And how do we learn to listen to our body? And pleasure to me, that's the main purpose of pleasure, is that once you start to feel pleasure and you can feel it all through you, it means you've also opened up access to be able to feel everything. And it's a way you open up access to your intuition, open up access to like authentic relationship. And I want a politics of authentic relationship where we currently have a politics of bullshit and lies and corruption. And so I want to practice that with everyone. I mean, yes. Throw the questions down. That's it. That's it. It's going down. Um, <laughs> the wind is just like, let it go. But I worked hard and I wrote Wait, these. Can I ask one thing? Yes. The, this mama who just came in with it, hey, you're such a fly baba. Hi, baby. I just wanted to see, are you comfortable in the sun right there? Because there's shade options, and I bet a lot of people would be down to like, yeah? Okay. Hi, Brandy. We love you. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hey, Brandy and Jupiter coming through. Okay, yeah. so um, 
Before I even go into this next question, what I do want to say, you know, so I'm first generation Nigerian American and yes. we spent a lot of, I've spent, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, up until I was maybe 16 or 17 going home every year. And this idea of pleasure as our birthright or being able to feel pleasure and still being able to, being able to resist or seeing the politics in, in every day or in the every day, it's something that was never are well articulated or codified for me as a child but there's just ease when you would go to the village like people are just like sweeping or they're sitting or they're like you know picking at okra or they're you know because you're also your parents and your grandparents everyone's buried on the land that you're living on so they're like cleaning the grave site but it's all in the same thing and what's really what really struck me when you were speaking now is just we we haven't been given that again. We haven't been told it's okay to just do nothing, to rest, to enjoy, to be in our bodies. We just feel that we always have to be in this feeling of fight and resistance. And reclaiming that pleasure is, is so core and so key. Or even understanding that that is resistance. Like, to me, it's not like... Like, I don't think it's like work hard and then go have pleasure. Like, I really feel like I only want to work with people who it gives me pleasure to be in their presence. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to build things that feel good to be inside of. And I want to and it's lofty. I don't know what's going to happen in my lifetime. I'm, I'm trying to do it. But I think that's the piece that it's like that's not a waste of time. Cleaning the graves is not a separate thing from any other aspect of resistance. Like being in my relationship with the ancestors is very helpful. Right. To very any other helpful, strategy yeah. we're trying to move. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. <sighs> OK. So. It's funny. I don't often feel this way when I'm on a panel, like doing a panel, but I'm like, mm, this is really good for me. I don't feel like I'm working. This is very pleasurable just talking about. See? It's like, we're yeah, doing we're, it. we're doing it right doing now. It. Okay. So, so in the last, so this question is for both of you. Um, in the last year, there has been more journalistic exploration and organizing around the maternal mortality crisis and the fact that black pregnant people are far more likely to die during childbirth than white pregnant people. Danny, how has this crisis impacted your work and also how did it impact your pregnancy and your birth? And Adrian, as a doula, how has it impacted your work and just, you know, the, the work that you do also as a reproductive justice advocate? Um, yeah, thank you for that question. I, when I was pregnant, um, so I lived... I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and that's where I live now. I've lived there for, I moved back there about four years ago. Um, it, but I had, I moved back home after living in Oakland for six, seven years. And when I got pregnant, I immediately started trying to put together the kind of birth experience that I would have wanted for myself, or that would have been easy um, to achieve had I still been in Oakland. So I was like, okay, I want to, um, ideally I'd like to give birth at home or I'm not really that pressed about that. A birthing center would be great. No birthing centers in Hamilton County. They've all been shut down. Okay. Well, I would like to work with a black midwife. Couldn't find one. Okay. Well, could I get a black doula? Couldn't find one. So I immediately, then I, well, so then I, um, started working with what I had access to. I found a um, place in Dayton, which is like 45 minutes north of Cincinnati, that at least got me close to having the kind of birth that I wanted to have, but within a hospital setting. Um, And then I found out I had fibroids, uh, one the size of a grapefruit and blocking the birth canal. So I wouldn't be able to have a vaginal birth. I I would have to have a C-section. So basically what I 
started realizing was that every challenge or roadblock that I kept coming up against was the same thing that as I was talking to reproductive justice advocates, asked, trying to understand what was going on with the black, mater black maternal health crisis, why we have it, they were saying, oh, well, a lot of the issue is that black women aren't being listened to because they can't find cultural congruence within their birthing partners. In other words, they can't find people to give birth with or people to accompany them through their, with their births who actually are culturally congruent, who actually see them as being fully human. And I was like, wow. bet, okay, yeah, like that's what I'm experiencing. Um, you know, black women, fibroids are very common uh, among, are more common among black women of reproductive, uh, reproductive age than they are among women of other races or ethnicities of reproductive age. Um, well, here I am finding out, even though I had been having regular pap smears, all of a sudden I learned I have this huge fibroid and it's going to affect the way that I give birth. So when I was in my third trimester, I started reporting a story about the black maternal health crisis for a number of reasons. One, at that point, it wasn't even really being talked about as a black maternal health crisis. It was being talked about as a U.S. maternal health crisis. People weren't putting the race lens on it. America, the United States doesn't have a maternal health crisis. Black people within the U.S. have a maternal health crisis. Um, we're the ones who are dying. Um, so, and, and in addition to just being dissatisfied by the reporting that I was finding on the topic, um, I felt like what little reporting I was seeing didn't offer solutions. It was just like people are dying. You know, you, women are dying, birthing people are dying, and we have black uh, high infant mortality as well, so our babies are dying. Okay, but what is to be done? Like, what are the solutions? Somebody, anytime there's a problem, there are people on the front lines who are working on a solution. We know this, right? So why is no one lifting up the voices of people who are working on solutions? excuse me, solutions. At that point, I had been reporting on reproductive justice organizing for six years. So I had all these great resources, Monica Simpson at Sister Song, um, Janice Zinzi, who's a PR person who does, she's, she used to be based here in LA, I don't know if she still is, does a lot of comms work for uh, reproductive justice organizations. Um, just all of these amazing, they, these sources introduced me to black midwives and doulas all around the country. Tamika Middleton in um, Atlanta, Jamara Omani in Miami. Because I realized if part of the problem is that black women aren't being listened to um, by white OBs, um, non-black OBs, non-black uh, uh, medical professionals, what happens if you take that out of the equation? Are our, are our outcomes better if we're giving birth with people who look like us? So it started this whole reporting process. I ended up writing a story that was a cover story for The Nation magazine called What It's Like to Be Black and Pregnant When You Know How Dangerous That Can Be. Um, and that article came out in February of 2017. And Erica, you're right. Over the, the the following two years, we've seen this explosion in reporting on the black maternal health crisis. Not only have we seen it named as like black, right? New York Times Magazine had an incredible cover story by Linda Villarosa. Um, NPR and ProPublica teamed up for this great series. Great series. Um, so we've seen this new conversation, which is incredibly important. I think what worries me is that um, we almost now have like uh, an epidemic of fear, right? Um, because it's not that we didn't know that there was a problem, but now we know the details of the problem. We know, you know, and it's great. We have people like Serena Williams coming out and saying, like, I knew I had a history of blood clots. I knew something wasn't right. My doctor didn't listen to me. Yeah. Beyonce, you know, talking about preeclampsia, all these hot intoxemia these high-profile celebrity black women who prove this isn't about class because that's what they try to say it's about. 
that it's not about race. It's about like poverty, the uh, social determinants of health. We don't access good prenatal care. It's on us. It's not because this cuts across lines of class. We're dying no matter how much money, education, our class status, any of that. So the good news is that there's this increased coverage. The bad news is that I don't think it's being held with a sensitivity around the fear that it's causing among black people and black families. Uh, I've been on this book tour. I had the honor of doing a, a joint event with Latham Thomas, another one of our college, our college friends, who's now um, you know, Glow, Glow Maven, you know, Mama Glow, um, incredible doula. Um, and she brought up, we did this event together in uh, the San Francisco Museum of the African Diaspora. She said everywhere, you know, she does these doula trainings that black people are telling her, I don't, young black people, I don't think I want to have a baby. I'm scared. I'm scared I'm going to die. Yeah. And so we need to, that to me is the next question of like, how do we hold these stories with sensitivity so that we're not, because that's deep. If a, if a trend in coverage affects people's reproductive decisions, it's like, what is the point here? What are we really doing? Yeah, I really, I really agree with that. And I think there needs to be more tools around, okay, now we know how do we combat the fear? How do we detoxify the clinical environment now that we know that this is truly a problem? Because there's stats. And I think, I don't know what that looks like yet, but like, what is that conversation with the clinician look like like what is it what does it need to be like because I feel like race needs to be brought into the room um, and how do you do that without feeling scared of doing that um, Adrian I'm curious obviously like I said just as a doula and also would you mind sharing for anyone who doesn't really know you know what is reproductive justice like what is that framework um, I think would be really helpful too that's great um, that's great. Well, reproductive justice is like so many of these things. It's interesting to me because like these things get coined and then like there's a lot of different people working with a lot of different ways of understanding it. My way of understanding is that reproduction doesn't happen outside of a context or an analysis of all the other social conditions that we're in. And it's a, it's another place where we need to be advocating for power and up, upending the power dynamics that currently exist. So I look at the work of Loretta Ross when I think about reproductive justice and the flowing out from that of like, how do we create spaces in which at the center of that black women and women who are most impacted and those who are most impacted who are trying to give birth actually have access to all the information that they need regardless of the combination of marginalizations that they're facing. Um, would you add anything to add, that? I want to add one thing um, in terms of describing the framework that I think was really helpful to me yeah. is um, that reproductive justice is, is a human rights framework that advances the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to parent the children that we do have in safe and healthy communities. Yep. So, so often when we think about, you know, reproductive rights, reproductive rights is very narrowly um, focused on contraception and abortion. Uh -huh. Very important. But that really just takes into account our right to not have a child. Yep. But when we do want to have a child, this is where what Adrian just said comes in. Okay, but what kind of communities do we live in? Yeah. Do we have to worry about uh, police violence? Do we have to worry about the schools where that our children yeah. are going to attend? Do we have to worry about getting them um, you know, good, affordable health care? It's like you don't just have a child in a vacuum. There are all these social forces that affect how well we're going to be able to raise them up. Yeah, and I would say like almost every time you hear the word justice attached to something, what they're saying really is... We live in a complex, intersected world. No one actually lives in these little tiny vacuums or silos of issues or any of that. So can we stop fucking around on that and like look at whole systems and think in whole systems and think of whole lives and whole communities? Um, I'll say as a doula, the interesting thing for me, I, I came into doula in a non-traditional path or a very traditional path perhaps, is that 
I didn't. I wasn't trying to be a doula. People kept asking me to do it. I was like, I don't like blood um, or tearing <laughs> vaginas or any of that kind of You're stuff. Right, it's know. not my thing. Um, and I hadn't had a child, and I thought you really needed to have one of those things. It had to be in order. Um, and then someone got carjacked behind my house when I lived in Oakland, and I was like the first person to be there with with the woman who had gotten carjacked. Um, who saved her own life by screaming out for help. And she was covered in blood and I was able to like be present with her. It, like the blood didn't matter. It was like, oh, I was like, I could do birth. Like that's, that would be less traumatic than this horrible thing that just happened. It's not, it's like all the things, right? It's all the things. So, but I found this woman, uh, Cynthia Jackson, who is a Detroit based home birth midwife now. And she was like, I'll apprentice you, like come with me on my births and then I'll show up for yours. And so I never went to any program. I didn't do the certification process and I I didn't do the sort of professionalization process. And I think it's been an interesting thing for my journey because the way that I learned it from Cynthia was like, this is what we always used to do. This is what we all used to know how to do, especially all the women in the community used to just be like, okay, now it's you, now it's me. Now we're all, we would just take turns taking care of each other. And I think the professionalization of it in one way is part of the problem, right? Is that it's like, it moves it out away from what people think all of us should have access to and all of us should know how to do for each other, which is just, oh, you're having a kid. Like, let's organize ourselves around what you need to be eating, how you need to be in your body. What kind of music do you need to be listening to? What are the vibes that are going to bring this baby in a peaceful way? What is the reality we need to face? You know, like all the things. And so that's how I started doing it. And initially for the first five years of my doula work, I focused on working with women under the age of 23 in Detroit. And it was very interesting because I think a lot of what I see, at least what I saw happening in Detroit was like, the issues were coming up because black women were having very different sets of values from what their families had and they weren't being supported by their families to have the kind of birth, labor, and child-raising experiences they wanted to have. Um, Two of the young women I worked with, um, they'd gotten pregnant at 16 and 18 years old. Their families were not, they were like, "We're, we're not supportive. We want you to not do this. And the fact that they were continuing to have the baby. So it was like trying to just move in and be like, I'm going to walk with you through this horrible experience. And I feel like for both of them, I'm not sure that they would have made it themselves or made it through the postpartum depression of trying to raise a child where your family thinks that they have some say over how your respect levels, right? Like they're just like, we're not going to, you don't know anything about raising a child. It's like throughout history, people have raised children at all kinds of different ages. And one of the things we can find out is when someone has a child, they very quickly adapt and figure out how to be with that child. And then it's about what, what are they exposed to? So I felt like my job as a doula has always been like, can I expose you to as many options as possible so that you, you know, can I use my education level? Cause I, I, I don't know it because I am a mom. I know it because I am a good auntie. I pay attention. And because I've been exposed to it, I was like, do you know you can refuse these vaccinations? It's an option. Do you know why people might do that? Or you can say yes to them. Make it an intentional choice. It's going into your child's body. You want to make sure you know what's happening, right? All this stuff. Or Pitocin. Pitocin has been like, you know, that's like, any, are there other doulas in the house? Other folks? And you don't, have any of you doula in the hospital? Yeah? That, that is the number one. I feel like Pitocin is the number one thing that you're in the hospital being like, please don't. No, right? Like I've had doctors sneak in and start bagging up someone on Pitocin when I, when I went to the bathroom, right? Well, it's so interesting that the conversation around Pitocin because you and I are similar dual work before having children or never having children, whatever, yeah. um, and bringing in the education to help people make you know better decisions. But what's fascinating to me is 
irrespective of race, class, anything, people know so little about the process. Just, that's it. And know so little also about the medicine. It's like when right. we think about Pitocin, Pitocin has such a bad rap, but Pitocin actually can be tritrated, which means it can be put higher, put lower. Exactly. It can be turned off. But only if you know you have the exactly. options, right? Exactly. And it's also, I think about who gets served by us being so ignorant. And that, like when I w- with the women that I've worked with, most of them, I'm like, oh, this doctor is trying to do this as quickly as possible mm-hmm. so that they can get on and get as many people as possible through. They're not taking this person seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, anything, if you make the choice, I'm pro any, like I say, any birth where you and the mom are happy and you're healthy and you're alive, that's a good birth. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. And I'll say that in the past few years, I've backed away from doing the intense level of doula work that I was doing. And mostly now I've been doing aftercare work. Mm-hmm. Like, and I love postpartum doula work. Like, that's what we did. I've do- gotten to do that basically one a year for the past few years where I show up and I'm like, okay. Now you need more than just the two of y'all to get through this period. And I think a lot of postpartum depression actually comes from folks having their child and then immediately the individualization of our society means like, oh, everyone says like, we know this is so hard, but they don't stay the night. No, no one's, you know what I'm no saying? One's, no one's coming over. And they're like, well, bitch, hold my back. <laughs> like, can you help me push stuff out of my boob? Like, I don't know what I'm can doing. You, can, you you, know? can you hold my boob? Can like, you hold my boob? Just, I've know. been holding boobs. Okay. But also like, there's really hard stuff that no one tells you about, too, like breastfeeding. I don't know. I just feel like there's so many pieces that it's like, it's not romantic. It's not beautiful. No. It's beautiful, but not in the way you think. think it is, yeah. And there's so much that's hard. And the thing that I'm really curious about is the relationship between postpartum depression, child mortality, like these things where I'm like, the state of the mother mm-hmm. is the state of the family, mm-hmm. right? Like that's how the family is going to be. And how do we, how do we show up and get intimate in those places of support? hundred percent. So... Well, I think one thing to tie up what the, both of you were saying, too, about the individualization and the experience is that as someone who, you know, I, when my brother was like five or six, my mom had someone from Nigeria come live with us for a year. I think that we are, Western culture or America is the only country where it's normal for two people to take care of one baby. Yeah. It doesn't make That's any sense. It, is. It's to, to, it makes no sense to me. I look no. at them like... Two people are not supposed to do this. It's supposed exactly. to be multiple people because infants have high needs. They need to be held all the time. Yeah. It's crazy for two people to do it. And also, I don't want to say anything bad about men, but I do want to say that a lot of the work is also really helping men in real time learn what they have not been socialized to know mm-hmm. in those moments, right? So it's like there's nothing about aggression that's going to help this baby not cry right now. There's nothing about you know, protectionism that's going to help you figure out how to make the breakfast right now, but you do need to do that. Or like nothing that you've ever been taught is going to teach you how gently you need to wipe this diaper, but I can show you. Right. And then I can, and also it's nice to be an other, another option to be like, no baby, that's not it. And so that the mom or, you know, whatever partner, cause I also have worked with, with, um, partnerships where people don't necessarily identify as male and female, but like whatever the two parent situation is, anytime there's masculinity, it's like gentling, softening the edges of that masculinity so they can actually be in and create that loving bond with their child early on. Cause I think if that, get, I also think that's a huge building block that we're missing right now is like the way that people are taught to be fathers 
um, versus what a father actually needs to be for this next stage of our of our human existence. I think doulas are a major part of how that softening and that that shaping can happen. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I wish we had more time just to talk about fatherhood and blackness and all of that because that's a whole nother piece. Chapter um, three of my book gets in. Chapter that. three okay, gets Danny. it. In. I try to keep. I try to keep. I try to keep it on. Uh, in, in I the did flow. write a little bit about that. <laughs> Tiny bit. Um, so we're going to switch gears completely now. Um, I and like your sharp turns, Eric. I you really know, just that. like a skirt, a skirt, a skirt. Okay. So um, also sound effects. So the dominant culture, again, we go, going back to that, and patriarchy have sanitized motherhood. Although the act of sex and potentially pleasure creates children, showcasing... You know, okay, we're, we're you know we're pressed oh, we're, we're pressed everywhere, um, showcasing sexuality or seeking pleasure, whether through sex or responsible or radical drug, drug use, are not culturally accepted as in terms of motherhood. So, Adrian, as a doula, you've guided people en route to motherhood, and you're someone who intensely advocates for pleasure and have openly expressed that ecstasy saved your life and cannabis has helped you heal. How can mothers combat the cultural restrictiveness of motherhood and cultivate sensuality and pleasure? And Danny, because y'all are booze or woes, um, you know, how, how have you... One of those. You know, one of those two things. Uh, how have you found ways to cultivate your own pleasure body while mothering your daughter? So y'all can just jump, but I... Yeah, please. What do you think? You got something? Um, yeah, so I was listening to, um, this podcast on being with Krista Tippett. She was interviewing, yeah, she's good. She was interviewing, um, Esther Perel. Does anyone familiar with her? Amazing. She's so good. She's a psychotherapist who works with people on, um, sex and relationships, but she, and she's been talking, writing a, a lot about the power of the erotic. And um, she was talking about, I guess her husband is also possibly a psychotherapist, but works with um, torture survivors specifically. And she was talking about how through she and her husband discussing their work, um, they were um, kind of exploring this idea that before you can explore your erotic power and potential, you have to feel, you have to have the basics down. You have to feel safe, right? You have to feel like um, you are safe, that you're out of harm's way, that you have basic food and shelter and your needs met. And um, I mean, that's just right, right? We know that, but there was something powerful in how she articulated it that I appreciated. And I think that as the as the a parent of a young child, and I'm a I'm a single mom. Every time I say single mom, my fingers fly up into air quotes because I think it's um, it's just not correct language. I mean, I don't do it by myself. I do it with a lot of support from my friends and my family. Um, but I'm an unpartnered uh, mother, and my child and I live in the home, the two of us. And there's a lot of stress. Like I'm, um, it's tough. You know, there's a lot to be done. Um, it's not coal mining. It's not like, uh, you know, um, but yeah, but it's still, it's hard work and I'm like underslept a lot and I'm, um, there's a lot that I'm, that I'm juggling. And so I've been thinking just about, um, the importance of having my basic needs met before I can really think too much about, um, before I can spend a lot of my time and attention getting focusing again on my pleasure, which when I was, before I was a mom, that was like what I was doing. I was working and seeking out pleasure, you know, pleasurable experiences. And so uh, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because I think it can be, 
tempting to place a lot of pressure on ourselves. Like, well, how do I, how do I start dating again? Or I need to like figure out my relationship to drugs, you know, because I used to really enjoy, um, ecstasy and mushrooms and cannabis and like, uh, different experiences of, of altering my, my mind. And so, um, I think for me, it's been this process of realizing that there's time, that I don't have to figure it all out immediately, that my primary job that I care about right now is caring for my, building a strong relationship with my child and getting us uh, on the right track and having a foundation there, and that there will be time to, to figure out, um, you know, to, to kind of come back into myself and into the parts of my life that were really important to me before I became a, before I became a mom. I would say uh, I really appreciate that because I also think talking about the pleasure activism book has been so illuminating to me that every time I say pleasure or pleasure activism to people, they jump to like, so sex dungeons, right? Like we're all on mushrooms in a sex dungeon, right? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, if that's your pleasure, if that's the number one only way that you can get it, then you should run to that dungeon and take all the drugs there. But... You know, pleasure at its at its basic thing is just happiness, joy, contentment, satisfaction. And I'm constantly asking people now, like, are you satisfied? Like, are you satisfied? What does satisfaction feel like in your body? Do you know what it is? Does someone else tell you when you're satisfied? Or do you tell yourself? Like, what is it? And I'm asking myself this all the time. I'm like... Like, and I have moments, you know, we've been, we're here, we're like doing our little friend vacation, right? Like, this is one of the things we do. And one of the reasons I love coming back to it over and over again is like, it's not like the thing I think of as peak luxury conditions, right? It's not like, oh, we're like, oh in a fancy hotel somewhere getting a massage every day. And, you know, it's like sleeping on the floor, like taking care of a baby a lot. And like, it's chill. And I'm so content. Yeah. And I feel deeply satisfied. Like, I'm like, we just made the shit out of these sandwiches. <laughs> They're tasty. Like, it's the simple pleasures. Like, we just looked at dolphins. They're miraculous. Like, they're, you know, it's not like Orgasmville. It's like we're just, like, having good life. And so that, when it comes to talking to moms, a lot of what I feel like is important is actually being in relationship with, like, are you okay? Are you feeling content? And there's a different kind of miraculous, delirious contentment that comes with motherhood and parenting that I get to tap into. And I'm very lucky because I ride very close to the people in my life who are mothers. And so I got to go through this with my sister where I got to see, like, the contentment of, you know, with my youngest nibbling, um, when she was born, I was her doula. We did a home birth. And I got to watch her come into the world. And then they live out in the middle of the woods. And um, it was a fire. It was like a wood fire stove. And I got this contentment. Like, I was on charge, in charge of waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning and loading the wood into that fire. And so I just had to be up, get the fire going, and pray and talk to ancestors and think. and like. But it was like, I, I've never, you know, there's not a contentment that's come quite close to that one. And each one gets to be its own distinct contentment. And so... I will say this. I do think it's really important to have communities that cross the line between those with parents and those without. And I think something I always get sad about is seeing how quickly it segregates so that the parents are like just with each other. And not to say it's like not to say parents can't cultivate joy amongst each other. But I think that sometimes what can happen then is like and I've I've been around space where it's like it's all parents and they're just like, here's how hard things are. And like it helps to sometimes come in and be like. I also want to inject some pleasure into this moment or reflect what I'm seeing, the beauty of, of this moment as a person who doesn't have kids or get to hold the kids and give parent time, you know, like 
quiet time to be like, I'll, I'm going to walk her down to the beach. You'd get 20 minutes. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I feel like it's important to continuously build spaces and stay in connection with our friends who are like, I know you have a new kid. And I always tell people this. If you don't have a kid and you're visiting someone who has a kid, one of the things you can do to increase that person's pleasure is do the dishes. Mm-hmm. Right? Or sweep the floor. <laughs> or be laundry. like, can I do your laundry for you? And it's intimate. Right? So it, a lot of times the person will say no the first time because they're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, you're here. So, you know, whatever it is. If they're, ni- if they're trying to be nice mama. But like, then if you just push back or you just start doing it, right? I've also done that a lot of times where I'll just come and I'll be like, the laundry looks full. Like, right. let me go do that real quick, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I feel like that just like being like, how can I give you 10 more minutes of life, you know? I really appreciate just one thing. Thank you for like, because I was going down the sex drugs rabbit hole. I well, think and also I, I can't wait till you come back to the sex too, drugs. girl. Me too. <laughs> me We are waiting. Too. We are patiently waiting. We've got it all lined up. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. Um, but also like, yes, there is great pleasure. We are on our woes vacation right now. And there's great pleasure in just like being with my friends, you know, just like, just watching Queen Sugar together and being like, yes. no, no, what? You know, just... You're like, Chico, where are we going with this? Yeah, okay. Chico, waiting, <laughs> anxiously waiting awaiting episode, Chico's episode. It better be better like, than this. Okay. Um, but so, and I, I think one thing I have done to try to increase just the enjoyability of my life yes. is like making time for my friends and yeah. just letting y'all like, okay, when we're, I have to, you know, like Jody will say, she's, Jody is here someplace. She's with she's my daughter. She's taking care of the baby. Jody Tanita. Um, Hey, I have to do a, a bunch of, I have to do a work thing in DC. Is it okay if I stop by Cincinnati on my way back to LA? Of course, just yeah. opening my home to my friends so they know you are constantly welcome. And yeah. also the reason that I live in Cincinnati with my daughter is because that's where my mom is and she gives us so much support. That's where my daughter's paternal um, grandparents are too. And they give us a lot of support. So living by family has been a way that I have tried to ensure my continued pleasure because I'm not doing it all by myself. I don't understand. We've talked about, you know, the kind of craziness around thinking that two people are going to take care of a child, Yeah. let alone one person. Like, I just don't believe even if I were partnered, I just wouldn't, I couldn't do family like that. I need my people around me to support. So that has been really important in making sure that I still have fun in this life is having adult support for my child. And the chores and and all that stuff. I mean, it it does, I'll just say the last thing on it, or a thing on it is it feels like it's also like the communities that we are moving towards. Like I'm always trying to be like, where are we trying to get to? And, like, where are we now? Where are we trying to get to? And all the places that I think of trying to get towards require a different level of intimacy and interdependence. And I think that that when people have kids, that's actually when the door is almost the widest open for, like, just learning how to receive help in a different way, right? And how to give help in a different way. Because I'm a Virgo. I'm an oldest child. Like, it's not my nature to be like, let me think about your needs first. Like, that's not my nature, (laughs) right? And so there's something, like, I'm like, oh, what do you need? Like you, you know what I'm like waking up me like, do you need to take the shower first? Or do you know, like just little small things that I'm like, I think I'm training into my system and my DNA, a better kind of human. Right. right? And I think that that, I think the more humans that are like, Oh, let me start to think of how I am with rather than how I am me. Right. I'm like, you're going to be you your whole life. Hopefully you're not a bad you, but like, how are you, you with others? That's when it becomes relevant to the human experiment. We live 100%. for the we. We live, we for, the live we. for the we. That's a great title, by you the know, way. You know, it really is. So I, so I want to say something, and then I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to open it up for Q&A. So just giving everyone, like, you know, it's coming. If you have questions, we want to hear them. Um, 
But what's interesting for me, hearing both of you talk, because I didn't know that the that the pleasure conversation was going to go in that direction, is that, and it's, I love the direction, because the direction it went in was just to reinforce the fact that I do think that the kind of, you know, the feminism that we hear and we talk about very much is just like sing woman single working no kids i'm in the i'm at the march i'm doing this right. i'm doing that and the reality is where we're going about this whole idea of like where we are and where we want to go is we need to be close to people that have children whether you ever want to have a child or not so that you have empathy and you can understand and you can help them recover and it's just we have to be pulling each other up and not ostracizing because it's like i can't really understand your experience because i'm not I haven't gone through it, which is interesting. Like you and I both being doulas before having children, it's just like, and I also ride very tight with my friends that are moms. Most of my friends are moms. Um, There's, there's something there. There's a knowledge sharing that happens and like a reminder for them that you can come back. You can come back, you know? Um, So it's really like that, that, that thing you just did of just like, hold on, come back when you're ready. It's like, that's it. (laughs) There's something. So it's, yeah, it's really powerful. So, Mushrooms are waiting for you. So, um, okay. Yes. Mushrooms are so great, though. I really just have to say. Um, it's just, I also do I mean, a lot of stuff of, like, trying to push marijuana on every. You know, I'm like, it's good for everybody. <laughs> There's just the right thing. Okay. So, last question um, before Q&A. Um, so, living in a black body comes with an energetic baseline of stress and adversity. At every moment, we are reminded that we aren't safe. Adrian, Danny, when it comes to raising black children in light of Tamar Rice, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, and so many others, and an increasingly prominent culture of white supremacy, how can we cultivate and impart joy in our children in the face of fear and the responsibility, the overwhelming, in my opinion, responsibility of teaching them how to thrive in a world that isn't built for them? Well, this was one of the driving questions behind my book because when I was pregnant, I felt um, really afraid. You know, I had been covering BLM organizing, black liberation organizing for some time. um, And there was a way in which because of my journalistic training, I was often able just to keep the information, what I was reading or reporting on kind of at arm's length um, and separate my own sense of safety from what I was, you know, the often... Uh, very scary and terrible things I was reporting on. But when I was pregnant, uh, I wasn't able to do that anymore. And I remember um, July of 2016, I was in my third trimester and Alton Sterling was killed by Baton Rouge police. And the next day, or maybe two days later, uh, Philando Castile was killed by police in the Twin Cities. And I just remember, uh, I just kind of lost it in a way that was new for me. And it was because I was thinking not about my own safety, but thinking I'm, I'm carrying this child and how am I going to keep this child safe? Um, and you know, I just, so, so asking that question of other black parents became a motivating factor for the book because people, we've been doing it for generations, right? It's not like this current wave of, um, state violence that we've captured on our cell phones is new. It's just that we're capturing it on our cell phones now and it has the potential to go viral, but we've always lived with this since we've been on this continent. And so, um, I needed to know from other parents who had been through it. How do you, how do you do it? How do you survive? How do you not lose yourself to the fear? And I mean, I just keep coming back to a story um, 
Kim Tabari, who's in the audience, somebody that I was kind enough to let me interview her. Um, she, I put the question to her, um, and she told me that one of the things that she does with her son is just to really root him in joy. And she said, um, so many people will refuse to see black children as black children. You know, they don't, and the data is there that shows us, you know, our kids get, our two and three year olds get kicked out of, um, preschool. What are you going to kick a, a toddler out of preschool for? There's no reason, right? Um, there's this data that shows this is, um, um, uh, Philip, Philip Ativa Goff, I think is the, the researcher's name, who showed, he, um, interviewed um, white undergraduates, and they perceived boys as young as 10 as being at least four years older than they were. So we don't even, like, we, they're, you know, some white people's perception, they can't even see us as kids, right? They can't see our children as children. And so what Kim said was, we have to give our children space to be children because that space will be denied them elsewhere. So if if nothing else, we have to. And so she said, you know, I, I play with him. I'm silly with him. You know, we have fun together. And that was, I just needed to hear that. You know, it's, it's, um, it makes a lot of sense, but I just needed to have that permission that like, you can just find joy with your child. Um, and through that joy and giving your child space to be a kid, you get to be a kid again too. And then that's like a, this self-generating joy process, right? Because, and I've found that, you know, my daughter and I have dance parties in our kitchen and I like playing with her on the playground. And so I think there's something about, yes, we teach our children the truth of the world in which we live in, in age-appropriate ways. And that's another conversation. What are the age-appropriate ways that you tell a five-year-old, you can't play with a toy gun like your white friend can? Right. So we have to have these age appropriate ways in which we let our children know about the reality. Um, And then other than that, we just like let them be silly and have fun with them. And that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to. This gets to the politics of pleasure, pleasure as an act of resistance. Don't let them take it from you. You know, I'm going to make sure that you have these reserves of joy built up to help you get through this world. So that's something that I feel strongly about. I love that. I feel like every I feel like all that. Um, and then the thing that comes to mind for me is also we need to learn how we decolonize ourselves in the way we've been taught to harm our children as a way of disciplining them. So I'm a really big, like, don't spank your child, don't hit your child, figure out ways to stay in a relationship that don't involve, like, basically being the precursor to the state with your child. And, um, and I feel it so deeply. Like, I'm just like, transformative justice to me is, you know, I talk a lot about it. Like, we grow up in the system of punitive justice. You get punished if you caused harm. We're starting to move towards restorative justice in more and more places where it's like, let's get back to the good. But restorative justice often puts us back in the cycle. It's like you restore the original conditions, but if the original conditions were unjust, that's what gets restored, and it, the harm happens again. But transformative justice is like, let's get to the root of this problem and upend it and make it so the harm can't keep happening. So I'm like, if you have a child who is causing harm, and the response is that you break the, re- the relationship of trust that you have between your body and their body, and then you spank them, you hit them, you harm them, you grab them, um, I think that that leaves an echo through their body. That's like, that's how I'm supposed to be treated if I cause harm, and that's going to contort me away from who I'm meant to be because I'm going to... My body is learning to obey. And I'll say this as someone who was spanked, someone who was sexually assaulted, someone who has child sexual abuse, all of the, 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 co- you know, the cocktails all there for a traumatic black woman life, whatever. I've been unfolding, but also seeing how it's all so woven together that spanking is also a sexual act. There's all these things that we don't really talk about. But I'm like, 
I, I think about that. I'm like, how do we not harm the children's bodies? And so that it's like the joy is not, it's not like there's joy over here. And then, but you're always, always waiting for the other foot to fall with the person who you love and you trust. How do you start to create a thing that's like, you know, you caused harm. I'm going to tell you like you caused harm. It's not okay. And we talk, you know, we do this with all the nibblings in my life. I'm like, baby, that's not okay. And then I'll tell you this, my, my nibbling who just turned seven, um, when she was six, twice, the police were called on her at her school. She's six years old. She's in rural, in rural Minnesota. She's the only brown girl in her class. And she was acting up and, you know, they would be like, we had to call the police on her. Right. I'm like, there's no, there's no way you can tell me that you as an adult can't figure out some solution. If this was a white kid running around, you would have figured out some solution that, you know, you would have seen their humanity. And so for that period after, it was just watching her then take that and act out in so many different ways. And all of us as adults having to learn against the conditioning of what we grew up with, like this is not a time to punish her or to send her away but it's time to pull her in. Like you're having a tantrum. How can I pull you closer to me and hold you in? What kind of space do you need? How can I love you more and harder? How can I let you feel my heartbeat is still beating for you? Like you are my love, you know? And I think about that, like I want that for every single child is to know that the the adults who love you, that love is unconditional and consistent and it's embodied and you're going to feel it. And then that, then the joy also lands in a different way, right? Because I'm like, it's so beautiful. I mean, Belle is back there and like uh, this beautiful child and we've been singing to her. We watch her dance around. I mean, she comes in and she just expects to be serenaded with love. And when she causes harm, she's like, I, I hear from y'all that I'm causing harm and we work through it. And then she often will come back and be like, kiss, you know, retouch the body. Like she makes, she, it's in a physical way that she comes back into right relationship. And then she asks about it. She's curious about it. And it's just like, oh, I'm so excited for what 16 is going to be like for you when some body crosses your boundaries, right? And you're transgressing. You're like, oh, hold on. I know how to set this boundary and I know how to return to right relationship because I learned it when I was two, right? hundred percent. I mean, Oh, there's so many things here. I mean, we for those who haven't heard about the concept of adult, adultification, this is what both Adrian and Danny have kind of been speaking to, that black children are seen as adults, not children in any environment. And it's, I, again, we didn't have... We didn't have the language for that back in the day when I was in elementary school, but, you know, I was super hyperactive and I would constantly be in detention and get demerits. And I'm talking about kindergarten and first grade. I remember being told I couldn't go. I was the only child in like a 90, there were like 90 kids in my first grade class that couldn't go on the field trip because I'd walked into the boys' bathroom just I'd walked in there just because I was like oh I just want to see what's in here just because I want to see what's in there I'm, I'm, I'm in first grade I just want to look around it's fascinating like what is up why are there two different kinds of bathrooms yeah can I just see you know um and and there's there's been so many experiences where I know that I was treated differently or w- the punishment was harder or stronger because of you know of how I looked we see it in the dress code violations where it's only black girls who get busted right yeah the white girls can wear the crop tops or you know people with smaller bodies but the black girls get police because of the shape of their bodies, exactly. not because of the clothes necessarily. Like, so that badonka dunk? Oh, hell no. I'm like, don't right. be jealous. So don't there are jealous. so many areas. <laughs> don't be mad. <sighs> so, questions. Questions, please. Put your hand up and we'll send a mic out to you. And please say your name. Greetings, family. My name is Iapo. Hi, Iapo. Hi. So I just want to say I am really grateful that I was invited to be here today by my friend Maria and um, 
I really appreciate the panelists and the discussion and the questions. One of the, the one comment that I wanted to make was um, in relationship to what you were talking about in particular when you were talking about pleasure and parenting and going back to mushrooms eventually. And <laughs> as a parent who has adult children now, I think there's this way that, especially as political activists, I've been a political activist for 20 plus years, and one of the things that I noticed, even within the context of the movement, was how there is a way that women who become parents are ostracized in political work. Um, I never was able to reconcile how I could be a part of an organization that was talking about changing the world and transforming the human condition and women being equal makers and shapers of human history, but I could not find any, anyone inside my organization to help me take care of my child when I Talk needed to go to a demonstration exactly. or when I needed to be in a meeting until midnight right. or what have you. And so one of the things that happened, I'm really grateful for this discussion because one of my frustrations that I'm still find myself apologizing to my daughter about a lot is about how my daughter, instead of becoming this person who... Um, felt embraced by the movement was an appendage of the movement. Mm -hmm. the abil my ability to take care of her was my ability to make sure the rent was paid and keep a roof over her head, but there was no collective nurturing of my daughter. And so she, like so many revolutionaries that have come before us, have the we have these children who become hateful yeah. or vengeful towards what we see as political work or political life because of that same ostracization of children in the movement. The other aspect of it is after I left that political organization and finished raising my children who are now adults, I became a single woman again, right? So I'm uh. 43 and it never ceases to amaze me how many men, so I'm just now dating again for the first time and I don't even remember how many years, it never ceases to amaze me how our relationships as women, our worth or our value is always from day one to day last quantified by our relationship to someone else. That if we are not attached directly to someone else at some given time in our lives, then suddenly our value diminishes greatly. 100%. So I am not actively taking care of children now. So what are you doing? I am not married. <laughs> So what's wrong with you? Uh -huh. That's the subtext, right? Uh -huh. So I will go out on dates with seemingly progressive men. <laughs> and the, the, the question will always come. Well, don't you want more kids? Like, why in the hell would I do something insane like that <laughs> at 43? Already, already, been, already been there. I've served my time. I've contributed progressive, productive members of society to the group. Like, I'm good. Like, can I have value outside of my vagina's ability to create other humans? Mm, 100%. Right? Um, and so... I am just now at 43. I drove out here from Alabama a year ago. And when I did, every, all of these things just came to the surface. It was like, everybody, even my most progressive militant revolutionary friends were like, you going by yourself? Like, yes, I'm yes, getting in my automobile and driving by myself. Right. I told my mom I'm going to camp the whole way. No hotels, no Airbnbs. I'm roughing it the whole way. Never been camping a day in my life. She was like, have you lost your goddamn mind, girl? Oh, my God. No, I just feel like everything up until this point, from the time of you're somebody's baby's little, you're somebody, you know, your daddy's little girl or your mommy's little girl, you're policed at home. 
We have a bad habit as women of policing our daughters' bodies under the guise of protecting them from society. And so we haul ass from mama's house because even though she loves us, we feel compressed, right? So at 43, I took off, drove across the country, six weeks, amazing experience. But you need to write a book so that can be made into a movie. That is Cheryl Strait. That's basically what Cheryl Strait did. Yes. You did Alabama to LA, black version of Wild. Yes. And there's yes because there's camping. I'm just like, can we also just talk about black people in camping and how? Baby, I mean, what? Listen, when I tell you, if you want, we all talk about the ancestors and the culture. To do this last statement, I'm gonna make. Y'all talk about the culture and the tradition. You know, we get a lake aid up. We get initiated. We do our little offerings to the ancestors. If you want to have a real conversation with your bit mama, take your ass to the desert and go camping for a few days. Ooh, that's right. That's real life. That's right. That's real life. Thank you. Thank you so much. I I just want to thank you so much for that testimony, for sharing. I want to just one thing I want to respond to. Um, I so appreciate what you said about the fact that there are um, the, the adult children of organizers and activists are often have a lot of um, animosity toward our resentment of the movement. Thank you for naming that. It took me. So my book is, you know, it's some memoir, but it's mostly reported. So I was in conversation with dozens of other people. Like, what has your experience been like? And I'm so thankful that in addition to talking to people like Trina and Kim, and I don't mean to assume that that you don't come from political families, but we didn't talk about that during our interviews. Um, but I, I did, I was so glad to talk with uh, Monifa Bendele um, and others who grew up with parents who in the 70s were either in the Black Panther Party or organizing African-centered schools or in the anti-apartheid movement. And one of the things that these people shared with me was like a lot, I'm still an, organ- I'm an organizer myself, but a lot of my peers won't go close to anything organizing because they feel like the movement took their parents away from them and that there was no space in it for families and for children. And some of them had uh, traumatizing experiences like at rallies and, you know, the police charging on them on horseback. And so thank you for naming that because I yeah. think there's a way in which those of us who didn't grow up with that reality can romanticize growing up in political families without really understanding what that can mean for a child. Yeah. And I would love to say I've been doing these events. I've been doing a lot of events and I've been facilitating for years. Like that's been my main adult work. And I have been guilty of all the different stages of it. Right. Like I've definitely been in the meeting like the baby is, you know, messing up our meeting right now. It's really nice that you had one. And then moving through that into now where I feel the opposite way, which is I'm like, the babies are tuned in at the emotional level. They can feel what's happening in the space. It's very helpful to have them in the space. And then also trying to create spaces where it's like not just child care, but like child child with, child love, child like, you know, having, trying to come up with for emergent strategy, trying to come up with like, what is the emergent strategy for children so that when we are gathering and we are moving stuff, that there's a space where they're also gathering and moving stuff. And how do we get committed to creating spaces in which we're all together? And I think that this is only a temporary moment that we are even in this kind of like, there's professional nonprofit work and there's jobs. Like, I think that this is just a very temporary situation we're in. So like, it's not, it's just not a long-term thing. I think capitalism is going to fall. I think a lot of the borders and the ways that we're, the structures we're so used to are going to fall. And so to me, I keep saying we have to learn how to be with in a holistic way and how to be bringing children along that are learning. I also think there's something about politicization that's not 
indoctrination, 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 what is it? Indoctrination. indoctrination. Like I see this and I t- the temptation for me with all the babies in my life is to be like, you must be a radical. Like, don't do that rebellious thing, you know, and, and try, you know, cause I'm like, if you guys rebel and you go conservative, I'm just, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, how is my unconditional love going to work under those conditions? Um, <laughs> I am available. You know, I'm going to love you, but gosh, I want to really love you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've been thinking about that is like, how do we create the conditions in which children get to absorb and experience the reality of community? And I think it's exactly that piece. That's like, we have to make sure that every single space we create that the children are like, oh yeah, I get a front row seat in the shade here. Like, it's exciting. I'm getting taken care of by the coolest auntie. That's great. Like, so that their experience of movement, just like I think, this is the whole reason I wrote Pleasure Activism. So I was like, we can't keep having movements where everyone is miserable and expecting that our numbers are going to grow to the level that it needs to be for us to win justice. Totally. So, and, you know, my friends know, I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, I'm barely, I can't pay attention to the elections yet. I can't do all the, you know, like, my politics is creating the pleasurable spaces, creating the spaces where people go into authentic relationship, creating the spaces for that. And I think kids are the fundamental, like, the fundamental aspect of that. And I wanted to say, we keep having issues where we're like, we're hiring people to do childcare and folks are like not trusting that it'll be there. Right. Like that's how far we are from where we need to be on it. That people are like, well, we, I mean like the last two events I've done, there's been a childcare person sitting there. Like I'm ready to play with the kids and do emergency. I thought about all these emergency strategy things and folks didn't bring their kids because they were like, usually it falls through or it's not good. Or it's like, they don't really like our kids or whatever. So I think it's the next place to really tune into and focus on. And I want to just affirm the journey you took. Oh, can I just say this one other thing, too? This piece around not being attached to somebody as, like, you know, I also want to have this breakthrough of, like, I'm single now, kind of. Like, I'm always dating a lot of people. But, like, I'm, like... For me, this is the first time that I've been in a space where I'm like, I'm not between relationships. Like, the most productive, awesome, happy part of my life is when I'm not in, like, a serious relationship. Because when I'm in a serious relationship, that conditioning of what women are supposed to do in a serious relationship kicks in. And so I'm just like, ah, how can I be Martha Stewart? I'm like, bitch, I'm not Martha Stewart. You know, I'm <laughs> but Adrian. But like, so, so so. What's that? She's a Virgo. Do you know she's a Virgo? I'm not surprised. <laughs> but we're still not the same person. Just and you know, Virgo who else is? Sister are you a Virgo, too? Virgo too? Okay, so yes. maybe it's just like Virgos That's need to not Vir- ever Virgo be rising, in serious relationships. But middle. I do believe that I think more and more of us need to unhook ourselves from the yeah. idea that like a single relationship is a way that we need to define happiness in our lives, and instead be dropping into the fact like when I drop out of that, I'm like actually. I do have the deepest, right. intimate, authentic relationships in my life. I have abundance. I go on great vacations. I produce work that I'm really proud of. I have very little time in my life that feels wasted or miserable or like, oh, why are you processing your shit in my house? Like, I don't have anyone in my house to do that. I'm like, go to your house if you want to do that. This is a pleasure dome. I'll see you later. Like, it's just, to me, I think more and more of us need to unhook ourselves from that concept of marriage ownership bullshit and really be like, if you get married, it should be because you love that person, not because of any other reason. Yeah, and totally. if you get out of it, it shouldn't be a defeat. It's like, thank God you got out of something that wasn't working, and let's keep it moving. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to say to just tie up the two things you were talking about, um, and then I think we have time maybe probably for two, two, more, two, two more questions. Um, on a, I'm always thinking about things on, the, on a micro level and a macro level. Just going down on the micro level, the next time you're on a plane and you hear a baby crying and you're just like, I'm on a plane, I don't feel like hearing this baby cry. Or you're at the restaurant and you're having like a nice dinner and That's someone's right. with their baby and you're just like, why is this baby here? This baby's crying. With people. 
look at the parent and give them a smile. That's right. Ask them if they need something and develop an emotional tolerance and resilience for the sound of babies because it's their communication. They can't talk. They're just doing their life. They don't hate you by the kick in the chair. No, the kick in the chair. Oof. So, I want to play. <laughs> <laughs> this is really great. I want to be here. It's really awesome. So, We're in the sky. Just kick in the chair, crying like we need to be more tolerant. We need to be more tolerant. Questions? Other hey. two. Hi, yes. Hi, Kim. Hi. It's Hi. so great to meet Ooh, you all. Kim, Kim. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm Kimberly. Um, I have a beautiful space in Los Angeles called Kindred Space LA, which is a parenting, birth, education center. It centers black people, people of color all families, um, but all are welcome. Thank you. And um, I've been a parent for 28 years. I have six children, three grandchildren, three and a half, I'd like to say, because my daughter um, and son-in-law are expecting their fourth in September. And thank you. Um, And I've been a doula for years. Um, Started out in postpartum, absolutely adore postpartum. I'm a board-certified lactation consultant and soon-to-be licensed midwife here in Los Angeles doing home You are exciting. Kimberly is a magic (laughs) And I'm excited about what you all are talking about. Um, It just resonates so much with my life and just my way of being in the world um, and my way of being with raising my children, which is... You know, you know, you're just kind of going through it when you're raising children. You're not actually all wise and all knowing at every moment. You're just, you know, we learn from our mistakes and we keep going. Also, I like to note that we have to remember that the children came here to teach us. And that's it. Number two, community. That's part, we have to reclaim community because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for community. We used to take care of each other and the patriarchy and supremacy and the breakdown taught us that, you know, just broke us apart. So we have to reclaim our community, whatever it looks like for us. Um, I agree with, I love the fact that the panelists, including Erica, who don't have children at this time or ever, whenever that works for y'all or not, um, also can view um, the window of or can be supportive of families. That's part of community. If you don't have children and you believe in the upliftment of the community, then you have to be with children. You have to be with parents. You have to support parents. And a lot of times, once someone has their first baby, they they complain that no one was there to help them, no one was there to, like, show them the way. And I say, like, well, what did you do? What were you doing when your best friend had their first baby? Right. Like, were you there? Did you bring dinner? You're like, shade. Time travel Did you travel sit shade. with them? You know what I mean? <laughs> Time travel. And most, and most people say, wow, it's so true. Like, I brought them an outfit. I brought them some flowers. Exactly. I didn't bring them dinner or I, whatever the case may be. And that's not to say that they're bad people. It's just that we have... Kind of. Un- <laughs> but we, we, have, we have been broken apart. And we've forgotten how to be in community with one another. So that said, um, my... You know, child, my oldest child who's about, my oldest is 28, my youngest is seven. And my oldest child who's about to have her fourth baby, as that time approaches, I'm thinking about what she needs. And I'm thinking that my life actually has to alter in order to be there to support her. And see, when, you know, as I grow in my parenting and my grandparenting, I, I also have to, I'm still a parent, even though my kids are grown, growing. But, and so that said, as much as I want to do for self, 
I also have to create time and space to still give to my family. And so traditional and reclaim the traditions of, for us, our African-American, our African traditions, which is where we come together and we support each other. And so I'm telling all my other sons and daughters who don't have children, you know, your sister's about to have another baby. Bobby, their daddy, is about to have another baby. They're going to need our help. I'm preparing them. We're going to have to be there for them. We're going to have, they're not going to necessarily ask. We're going to have to be there and letting them know. And this is our tradition, and we must go and look into our traditions and reclaim them to rebuild our family structure. And whatever way it works for us, you know, we get to create it the way we want. And thank you very much for talking about pleasure because, yes, there is so much fear around birthing. If you're a person of color, you've read all the stories and you're scared shitless. But if reclaiming our pleasure is a revolutionary act. So know what's happening. You know, step outside your own box. Look at your own conditioning. And, and go to what makes you feel good. And embrace that. And, and develop it. And, and also for our children. They're watching us. We don't have to teach them anything. We just have to be. That's right. And what we want them to see, we, right. we have to be that. And they'll learn. That's why I say grandmothers need to be having a lot of orgasms, too. I, grandparents, I think about this all the time. I'm just like, it's poor. Grandmama needs a vibrator drawer, too. Like, we need to, you know. I mean, these, these are facts, okay? <laughs> Love you, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. She's like, actually, I do. And I'm a grandma, so, you know, it's cool. Um, last question or comment yes. or testimony, which are, we're happy with any of those. So I'm actually, I just, my first, my name is Jada Parks Chatterjee. Thank you for all the vagina power and all the allies in the room. Hey. Right. Um, I am a nurse. I work with moms and babies. And I also have the privilege of working with Erica Chiti Cohen, who is the hashtag boss. <laughs> like it's so, it's so honoring in order to just like show up and be present and then be able to give feedback and my thoughts. And I'm just, I'm really grateful. Um, I always make sure that I bring my son around all of this hashtag black girl magic so that it is never a uh, misinterpretation of what mother is trying to show off, right? I think it's very important. So I have a few things and I listed them through your conversations, as you know. So um, I already said my boss is the bomb. That's Erica, because she the bomb, right? And then the other thing I wanted to just confirm on is just, you know, when you talked about Pitocin, um, I, <laughs> Pitocin is like one of those long lost cousins that we don't get a chance to, please sit down, I cannot see the lovely people. <laughs> it's one of those long lost cousins that actually bring good wisdom, but they don't really like know when they're welcome. When is they're welcome, when's the right time? Expired. Right. And I think the people that show up with Pitocin um, are not having conversations and dialogue to talk about consent and to really have an understanding of what it is that the person on the other end that's receiving wants. Also, part of that equation is being prepared to have an understanding from your own interpretation. Right. Because as an African-American woman from Louisiana, I saw you back there from Alabama. I'm yes. glad you made it down over this way. Welcome. <laughs> 
But I think that one of the things that we are, um, we, that we have an area to improve upon as African-American women is to become more woke yeah. about what stems from the vagina, from the inside, and then what actually comes out. Yeah. Because if we are not woke about what goes in, then we really don't have a lot of room to complain about what comes out if you didn't ask the questions. Yeah. And then it goes back to, okay, well, I didn't know what questions to ask. And then I would say, well, that's because you didn't seek out Kim Durden. Or you didn't seek out Brandy Jordan, or you didn't seek out Erica Chitti Cohen, or you know what I'm saying? So I think that we have, I'm glad we're consistently, we're being very intentional about these conversations that we're having for African American women um, because I'm at the bedside, right? I made a choice to be at the bedside, right? I am also the bomb. And so I could be anywhere in the healthcare system, and I have made a choice to be at the bedside specifically with postpartum women in a population where I have an access to talk to Becky and Boquisha all in one day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? Okay. And that's important because I can close the door and have a conversation and be like, girl, where you live? And then when you talk about, where, talk about the men that are at the bedside, because I see a couple of brothers sprinkle through. Mike, we're always happy to see you. <laughs> I think that it is slowly becoming an area of concern because of the media. So the media is instilling fear, unfortunately, in the women, but the media is waking up the men. So I think that is something that I'm recognizing probably in the last year or so that the men are actually becoming more receptive. Um, I see it when I'm educating couples, whether they are same-sex couples or they are heterosexual couples, the men, when I'm talking about things that are drilled down to quality, data, outcomes, death, and living, literally, the women are standing up like, I just want to know how to prepare this bottle of formula. And the men lean in and be like, wait a minute, so you said that the colostrum she produces. I mean, so it's, I recognize that body language that leans in to where the men are becoming woke. And so what I'd like to end my conversation, because I could keep talking to you guys all day, is as I you know, participate in these African-American infant mortality work groups and things on a, you know, on a national level, on a county level, on the community level, how do we facilitate and really embrace with empathy and love the partners and the family in order to come up with solutions for why our babies and our mamas are dying at astronomical rates, right? So, and, and you said that earlier, like, you know, we all talking about it, but we really don't have a solution. And that's because we got a lot to say. Like, there's so much to say before we can even get to the solution to be felt like we're heard. But I do think we owe ourselves in 2020, and that's the challenge for everybody that's walking around, is in 2020, we got to list the solutions from one community to another. Because what my community needs here in Los Angeles is completely different from what the community in Baton Rouge, Louisiana needs. Right? right. One of the things, thank you for your comments. Your question about how do we start to involve families, and thank you for pointing that out about like partners being like leaning in with that new wokeness, because they, you're right, and let's applaud and lift them up, right? Because that's very important. One of the um, things that I learned about in reporting uh, the chapter on pregnancy and birth, this was I, I actually talked to um, a black woman who runs the I think um, obstetric unit at the Henry Ford Health Systems in Detroit. She was saying one of the things that they've done that has really brought down their um, maternal mortality um, and just improved outcomes both for in terms of babies 
thriving and, and um, birthing parent thriving as well, is they've done this whole model around prenatal care where instead of um, individual prenatal care, you centering. get a... Yeah, centering yeah. pregnancy. Is that what the model's called? Yeah. yeah. Right. So many people have heard of this. So it's like group prenatal care where you get... Um, you're, you're paired or part, you're in a group with people who are at the same week, right, of your, of their pregnancy together and they go through so that you're getting the one-on-one care you need with like your belly measured and your, your weight taken and all that. But then you're in a group setting so that you can have conversations that you need and realize that that question that you have about your pregnancy is the same question that this person has. And so, and they ask the question that you didn't even think to ask, but, oh, I need to know that too. And your question makes me think, what if, what if there were a model that incorporated family members as well? I don't know if currently partners and mamas and whoever can come in there, um, but that would that's kind of like how do we just keep layering our need for community onto care, right, at the totally. prenatal and postnatal level as well? Because yeah. I'm so glad you talked about our experience, you, yeah. you know, because I had the, the honor and pleasure and, you know, of Adrienne being our postpartum doula, and she really did shift. She took care of me. But she shifted dynamics within my family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was such a support to my daughter's dad. We have so many sweet memories yeah. of the two weeks that she came and stayed with us. Mm-hmm. She was a support to my mom and his mom in very subtle ways that I don't even know the details of because I was knocked out post-C-section. Mm-hmm. But just having that support there, not just for the birthing person, but for the whole family, I think is so critical. Thank you for raising that. Well, and it makes me think, we actually did, you know, like when Bell was having a hard time with... Um, Breastfeeding. Oh, I was right? going to go into that with that question. Yeah, then. I was yeah. like, you know, because that's the thing. There's like, you know, the uh, of the things that folks don't teach you, or it's like you don't know how to ask, or you don't know what to do. Then those in those moments, right, where it's like, okay, I just went through a C-section. I'm uh, I'm trying to deal with pain. I'm trying to deal with having a new child. I'm trying to deal with all like there's the emotional, there's the physical, there, there's so much going on. And then people are giving you like, okay, here's the thing to do, and you go try that, and you're like, that's not working. And my child is looks like they're getting skinny. I don't know because it's my first child. We don't know. Or you're going to a lactation consultant and getting shamed and being told that you're not breastfeeding right, and they're like wondering whether or not you're smart enough to do exactly. it. Exactly. But I'm happens, thinking about think that. About. That we were in the we went into those appointments together, and it was like really interesting to navigate to feel like what are people going to assume? Like what are people going to think? You know, like I just remember the conversations heading in, right? Of just being like. How does my hair look? Like, do I wear my wedding ring? Like, da 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 da. Like, what are the things I need to do in order to get the best response from people here? And I do think that the broader community, the more people that are involved in, like, we're all holding this. We are all holding this child together. Because I felt like that when I was in there, just like, you need me. You need me to talk to her because she. I don't like how she's talking to you. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, you just need your sister friends in there. You need your everybody in there. So I think it is a lot of what we've been talking about this whole time. And I think that there's something about the celebration and gratitude piece of what we have already that you just uplifted, which is like, and times are changing. I think the Me Too movement, like things are shifting in terms of how men are thinking of themselves and their role in society, and. I don't think I'm of the opinion that I'm like, I don't think shaming, canceling and, and trying to erase is necessarily the move right now. I actually think we need to be uplifting the men who are doing beautiful work and doing good work and trying and showing up, even if they're stumbling. Of course, they're stumbling. They've only been taught to crawl and to suck from someone else's breast for life. No offense, men. I mean, like, it's just like it's not it's literally like that's just what you were trained. Right. It's not your fault. And then you're trying to be like, I want to be different from that. So I came to an event like this. I want to be different from that. So I go and talk to the men in my community in different ways about this, right? Because there's conversations men will have with each other that they will not have with a woman present. There's spaces. I say that with white people, too. You know, I'm like, there's spaces you'll go into 
and you'll talk about stuff that, that you wouldn't talk about in front of me as a woman of color. And I think this is an interesting time where more and more people are rec- recognizing each one of us is a fractal of the system of wholeness that we're longing for. And so how do we start to lean in and be like, oh, I'm grateful for the way you are, you are changing and you are changing and you are changing and starting to weave, weave those circles together, weave the communities together. In the, um, and I also think this piece around deconstructing family from the biological um, the more and more that we do that, that I'm like, you are family. I, and the, when I'm talking to your mom, I'm like, you're also my mom. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? And like, I just feel like, you know, what we do as family, like, I feel like that child knows us as her family. And I feel like I'm part of so many families. Like if I, I don't even know how to number them. Like there's so many children that I'm like, that is my nibbling. I am responsible for that person's well-being. If they need a financial support, I'm responsible for their financial support. If they need emotional support, if they need, I have a nibbling right now who's, I've been part of her life since she was nine. Now she's an adult Mm -hmm. and she texts me when she's depressed and dealing with stuff. And I'm the one who has to be like, no matter what time it is, hey baby, oh my God, it's so good to hear from you. Wow, you're doing a great job at handling all these emotional times. Of course you're depressed. This is a depressing time. Anyone who's not depressed is not paying attention. However, you still went to your birthday party? Good job. You know, like being like, I'm going to love you up and we're going to all love a lot of people up. And I think if the more we broaden it out, especially those of us who are not having children ourselves, the more we broaden out the way we think of who is our family, the better we'll be in the long run. 100%. And I'm just, I've, like, with hearing the three of you all talk, there's just three things I want to mention. Three things. Three things, and then we're done. Um, but the first thing is just thinking about the fear component. I think the movement is from fear to format. Like, what is the format to combat this fear? And I'm really curious about just continuing that conversation to figure out how we can actually combat, you know, implicit bias in the clinical setting. Because what was interesting when you were just speaking about, you know, how do I want to wear my hair? Like, what do I got to do so that I can get better care? The fact is... It doesn't matter because implicit bias, you could be like, hi, I went to Harvard and I know exactly what my like heart rate is and I know this and it doesn't matter. They're going to treat you, a white clinician is going to treat you poorly, not even on purpose. doesn't matter if they're here right now. There's just a deep, deep unconscious bias that's existing. So how do we, how do we really fix that? And what was interesting when you said, you know, when men are together, they're going to have a certain conversation. When white people are together, they're going to talk differently than they would talk if we were in the room. I'm very curious about kind of the communication between, you know, white allies and clinicians with black people in the room. Like, I feel like there's something that needs to happen there. I don't know what it is, but it's like, yeah, because when white people talk to white people, they're talking. They're really talking. When black people talk to white people, it's like we're talking, but like maybe you're not totally hearing what I'm saying. And I just feel like culturally there's something there that's like kind of hard to, to really unpack fully, but it's something I've been thinking about. And then the last piece is thinking about the partner component and the fact that I really see partners as gatekeepers, not just for pregnancy, but for menstruation, for menopause, just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean you don't need to listen and understand every single detail of how it works because you can pass that information along. And I do feel like you just said cancel culture is not the thing we need to be like pushing forward. Exactly that. As much as patriarchy and men are problematic, we need to be inviting them to the table and saying, here's how you can help by just 
harnessing this information and being able to share it. And so I just, yeah, it's just a really wonderful thing to see men here and men coming to prenatal classes and all of that. It's like, you can, you can learn all about it. You can know about the four phases of the menstrual cycle. We would love that, you know, and being able to like talk about it in a way that would be helpful. So Adrian, Danny, thank you so much for your words and your brilliance and your presence and your energy. This is beautiful. Loved thank it so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. And thank you to Underground and Parenting for Liberation. This was amazing. Thank you, everyone. I hope something shared on this episode will inspire you to parent for liberation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting for Liberation. Please like us on all social media at Parenting for Liberation. We'd love to hear from you how you are Parenting for Liberation. Feel free to comment, like, tag using the hashtag Liberated Parenting. Feel free to DM or email us at parentingforliberation at gmail.com with any questions, topics, or if you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast. All right. Until next time, let's get free, y'all.